Welcome, this is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films. My name is Marshall Smith, and this film today is is fascinating, if for no other reason than the impact on the genre over the almost 50 years since it came out, and, and it was great fodder for discussion with my co-host. I'm Laura Patterson. Um, Marshall and I have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder, And I've always enjoyed horror because it has a great, I would say ability, I guess this is just what it does, that it dives into things that other people don't want to talk about. And it looks at the brutal and nasty and ugly side of human experience, which I've often said can be very cathartic. And I think this film in particular is interesting because it was an attempt a very long time ago, 50 years ago, to dig into just the core of how bad can it get? How ugly and awful can we make an experience? And that in itself, I think, makes it a very interesting, not only interesting experience, but interesting historical experience to see what people thought in 1970 the, the worst we could show was. And I also just very much appreciate that instinct in the horror genre and in people who play in horror to talk about and think about what bad is. And the film that we watched is Wes Craven's first film, written and directed, the 1972 The Last House on the Left. And the uh, two young women adventure into the city to see a rock concert and horror ensues. I I don't think there's any reason to say any more than that. Um, Our entire catalog of past episodes is available on our website at collectivenightmares.com. It's all free. You can also get in touch with us via uh, our email, which is on the website, or Instagram at Collective Nightmares. We have done a fan request for a title that that someone was interested in us discussing. So you can reach out and if you have ideas or just let us know what you're thinking. Is there something else we usually do? Spoilers. Oh yeah. Oh good. For this film. Or I spit on your grave somewhat, not a ton, but somewhat. A ton of spoilers for Nick Offerman's, or the the short that Nick Offerman was in called The Gunfighter in 2004, which I spoil a lot because I found it horribly offensive. So I don't really recommend you see it. Can I I just say again here in the spoiler section where it doesn't belong, that what was problematic about that short was that the laugh lines, it was a comedy, and the laugh lines were frequently homosexuality, racism, like, aren't these things funny? And they're not funny. And it was just, it was 2004. And it got some critical acclaim from festivals and people just love it on YouTube. And I found it really bothersome. So I I spoiled the heck out of that. Which also speaks volumes for us trying to imagine context for a film that came out in 1972. (laughs) That was not a third as long ago. Yeah. Felt like we spoiled something else. Did we spoil something else? We talk about the history of Friday the 13th. We talk about yeah. Black Christmas a little bit. 
there's multiple versions of the film. We, we did our best to find an unrated version. We don't think we did. We think we found the R version. So that's the version that we're discussing. And generally, if, if there is an unrated or a director's cut, we, we, all, we try and find that. But in this case, we, we weren't able to. So I don't know. I guess that's worth saying. I think it's absolutely worth saying. And I think it, it feeds into the entire discussion, especially because both Marshall and my memories of this film were very different than our experience this time around. And I, I wonder how much those six minutes could have mattered if our previous viewings were the, the uncut version. Thank you for joining us. And with that, we will uh, dive into this discussion and we're going to see if we can get all our ducks in a row. Okay, let's talk the movie. Okay. Huh? Oh, I was going to do a quick... I think this is helpful when we do this, especially when I go back. So Marie Collingwood is the prime is the protagonist. I thought it was Mary. Okay. Mary. Spelled M-A-R-I for no apparent reason. Her friend is Phyllis Stone. Krug Stillo is the father of Junior, who is the Krug is the hench primary henchman. Weasel is the friend. Sadie is the woman who's evil. Junior is Krug's son. Is Krug the older guy or the younger guy? Krug is the guy who gets chopped up with the chainsaw. Weasel is the guy who makes it, quote unquote, with mom. Now I'm having a hard time in those scenes even picturing who was who. The one had like the curly dark hair and the other one had like a little bit of salt and pepper and looked older. I assume the salt and pepper guy was the the dad because he's older, was the dad of Junior. Except I swear sometime... The other guy with the curly dark hair. Oh, when the guy with the curly dark hair, he was getting the, when he told Junior to shoot himself. Krug is, is curly dark hair and is the father. Okay. Weasel is the salt and pepper hair. Junior is Krug's son and is the, isn't as participatory in the violence and is the uh, heroin addict. Uh, Krug had Junior see. when he was like 10. Apparently. <laughs> part of their moral degeneracy (laughs) and the parents are john and estelle john's doc is the doctor and estelle is you know mom sheriff is just sheriff and deputy is deputy so i just wanted to do that quick i think it's been helpful when we've done a little quick even recap of names and who they are to kind of especially i don't know if we can expect people to to watch the film like right before they listen like we do we watch it right before we talk and sometimes we still can't even i can't still can't even remember who's who so okay so you as much of a a Wes craven fanatic as i am this is not a film i of his that i've revisited but you have mentioned it quite a bit and so i was wondering i was thinking maybe you ought to start and i think you were more the person who was like okay let's go back and watch this film so I feel like I have to tell my history with the film almost as a, a separate commentary than my experience with the film this time. And I wonder okay. if that has to do with the censorship situation with the film. I mean, my version was 85 minutes long. I think you said that the uncut version should have been 91 minutes. So we can get to that a little later. I, I don't, I just want to say my experience of the film, my memory of the film was very different from watching it this time. So the first time I saw this film was back before you and I started hanging out, Marshall, and I had, when was that? I don't even know, 10 years ago, probably. It was soon after grad school. 
And right. it won, I had signed up for a horror movie meetup group in Denver because I wanted people to watch horror movies with because I, I watched them, as I've said before, alone in the basement by myself. <laughs> and I thought it would be nice to have someone to talk about them with. And I was really disappointed in the meetup group. They were very nice people, but what I wanted was you, Marshall. I was looking for you. <laughs> and, and I didn't. Find, I found people who wanted to go see Sharknado and. Um, and there I was, right under your nose the whole time, <laughs> thinking know. that we were friends. I know. I, didn't, I, didn't. I, was, I, I love giving you a hard time about that. It was horribly wrong. <laughs> so in my, in my long search for you, Marshall, I went to a couple of horror movie events, including a bowling event. And why the heck I went to a bowling event? I don't even know. It must have just been a night that I had nothing to do. I, I don't know. Um, but the good thing that came out of this is that I was talking to someone it, it might be the guy that we run into often at the horror movie showings that I think I've introduced you to and I'm forgetting his name now and I always forget his name. Or maybe it wasn't. But anyway, I, talked, I met someone and I, we were talking about what types of horror films we liked. And he said to me, have you seen Last House on the Left? And I said, oh yeah, I saw that back in theaters. And yeah, I think it was all right. I don't really remember a whole lot. I think I liked it. And he gave me this look and he was like, no, not like the one that came out you know, a few years ago. I mean like the 1972 version. And I said no, what? There was one? And he looked at me like, how dare you call yourself a horror fan? You didn't even know there was a 1972 Last House on the Left. It's written and directed by Wes Craven. Who are you? And I was horribly ashamed of myself. And so I went home and the first thing I did like the next day was find the 1972 version of Last House on the Left and watch it. And this was while my parents were living with me, actually. I was in this house, um, it, but it was before they moved out here. And so they were in the process. They moved out and they had a townhouse that was being built. And so they had a couple of months where they had to kill some time. And they stayed with me for those couple months. And my dad, my mom was really good about staying in the basement, basically, most of the time. They had the whole basement to themselves. And she, if you're going to live with your kid as an adult for an extended period of time, she was really good about just kind of staying out of my hair mostly. My dad, on the other hand, just milled around the house, just aimlessly milled, you know, and it was fine, but it was funny that he never caught on, that my mom was always like skulking off to the basement, like, okay, well, come on, Bob, it's 6.30, we should go downstairs, and my dad's like, what? Just wandering through the kitchen, you know? <laughs> Continue to wander for another 45 minutes. Um, I tell all of this to say that I decided to watch The Last House on the Left one night, and they were here. And it was, I swear it was on Netflix, which was the first place I looked for it tonight, but I couldn't find it. But I think it was on Netflix. And I was amazed when I started watching the film because I was thinking to myself, what kind of horror movie is, was made in 1972? This is so long ago. It's not going to be... It's not going to be edgy at all. It's not going to be anything. It's going to be some kind of fluff. Like, I, I really didn't believe the argument that this person at the bowling event was making that this was going to be like, whatever, some sort of groundbreakingly violent film. And so I watched it and I was shocked. And I remember I turned it off at some point in the film. I was like, I can't do this because my dad kept wandering into the room and I was so uncomfortable with his presence. And I, I specifically remember a rape scene. I remember violence that was just so bothersome to me that with my dad wandering around, I couldn't have him there. And I didn't want to have to have whatever conversation that might entail. And so I paused it and I watched it later. And at the same time, I was really impressed by the film. And I was taken aback by like, wow, who was making this kind of film in 1972? 
And that's what started the whole ball rolling on actually meeting you, Marshall. So in a way, I can mm. say that you were a result of the horror movie meetup group. <laughs> I started reading books on Grindhouse. I looked into Last House on the Left. I started reading books on Grindhouse films because that was a distribution channel for these types of films at that time period. And then contacted you sort of from that. So to me, Last House on the Left was a very edgy, very violent film that I was shocked was made. I mean, I was shocked it was made by today's standards. And then to think that it was made back then and really led to the realization for me that horror as a genre was much more transgressive, I guess I'll say, in that time period. And then I realized doing a little more research on this that in the 80s and slasher films and all of that, some of that came out of the grindhouse popularity of horror films, but it was watered down and palatable and it was made for mass consumption. And so what I thought of as horror and what I had grown up thinking of as the edgy horror films were really the mass-produced, watered-down versions of things like this that were happening earlier on in the 70s, which was fascinating. And so my memory of the film, like I said, is just that it was, it was violent and graphic and brutal and painful to watch with my father here. And also, I remember the soundtrack just being awful. I remember bad acting, bad production value, and the soundtrack being this like loud circus music that was somehow really off-putting and just didn't fit with what was going on. And it was, it was just a difficult watch, a difficult watch. And I was impressed. So that's in the past, but this time I have to say watching it, I had a very different experience and I feel like I've, I've talked enough on backstory here. So I'll let you jump in, but that's, that was my interest in seeing this film in the first place, I guess, because it, it really, I think I thought at least, although I feel less that way now after watching the version we just watched, um, I felt like it held a, an important, it represented an important time period in the history of horror that, I hadn't been aware of until I saw this film. I, <clears throat> I've seen this once before and I'm fairly certain I really only watched it to, as a, is that a word? As a completist. I only watched it to make sure I'd seen everything by Wes Craven. And now I'm looking at his IMDb and there's actually a couple of TV movies that I guess I haven't seen. And he apparently made a musical drama <laughs> <laughs> about teaching violin to inner city kids with Meryl Streep of all people, which I also haven't seen, but whatever. I've seen all his horror movies and except for these TV made for TV. And so that's why I watched it. And yes, I remember, I remember particularly the, the music being as bizarre as, and um, like jarring. Yeah. I, yeah. There's a word that I, can't think of, but yes, as bizarre and like as in uh, as contradictory as as could be. I'm surprised at how little of it I remembered rewatching it. I didn't even remember the chainsaw scene. I did remember the the sexual assault and particularly the music during that. But other than that, it never really didn't make much of a, it, it. I mean, it you know it was something to see, and I'm glad I had seen it, but. It's, uh, again, as a as a very, I consider myself a very enthusiastic Wes Craven fan from start to finish, and it's not a film of his that I've revisited. I think maybe I might have, I might have rewatched it when the, the 2009 version came out, possibly, as a compare, but yeah. Did you find it to be, I don't even mean now necessarily, because we both watched the censored version, I think. But when you saw it in the past, do you know if you saw the unrated version? And did you find it to be really graphic and impactful in that way or no? I 
don't remember it being particularly so. No, uh, I'm really having trouble sorting out the the versions because even like IMDb has a whole here section on alternate versions. This says available on video in either an 83 or an 84 minute version, which has some extra gore in it. I could have swore I saw somewhere that there was a 91 minute version, but I don't know now where I saw that because it's not showing up on IMDb. So I don't know where I saw that. Apparently the Blu-ray that was released has some other footage, but it's not like finished. So it's unclear if it was actually in the film or not. And then there's um, uh, and then there's this other bit from IMDb that's reportedly director Wes Craven decided that he had gone too far and, and cut some of the more extreme scenes of violence out of the theatrical version. And then they also have this, uh, there was something else where it said that Craven had set up where there were so many, in, there are so many theaters that were by themselves cutting out chunks of this film they had a whole setup process like set up to restore versions that to restore that footage to versions because they'd get them back from whatever theater and however much of it would have been cut out for that theater's standards or whatever so i don't know if there is a definitive version i i do seem to remember the assault scene in particular being longer there was definitely some mismatch between what i remember and and watching it this time and to the point where I was like, maybe I was remembering a different film. I had it, the same experience. And I, the assault scene in particular, I, I have a memory, I think, I have, I have a very distinct memory of that, of the girl. And I want to say like being on her stomach and the guy is on top of her kind of pulling at her and dragging her backwards. And yes, a lot more graphic violence. And also the evisceration scene. I remember... 10 years ago when I was looking into this film, reading something from Wes Craven about what he was after in creating this film. And he made a point that was somewhere along the lines of art is about real things that happen and violence is real. And we wanted to just show as bad as it can get or something, something in the direction of like, just wanting to put out the worst that he could think of putting out and that that was going to be a, a useful experience either for him or for viewers of horror or, or whatever. And I think I remember him specifically referencing the evisceration scene in that discussion and saying something about, you know, the, the just brutal act of eviscerating someone and how gory that is and how unpleasant that is and how awful that is to just sort of sit in that and see what that feels like. When you say eviscerate, do you mean emasculate? Are you, are you talking when she chews off his cock? No, no. Evisceration, like when they cut open the friend and they start pulling her organs out. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. This film is it was over in a flash. And so I think that scene was much longer. And I think, I I just remember, I have this memory of him discussing that particular scene and he said something about approaching this film academically and how he was trying to get at sort of the basest experience of, of violence that we could have. And I just have this memory of that particular scene being tied to his commentary. And so when it was almost non-existent in this version, that felt to me like something was very much lacking. I also have very distinct memories of after watching this film, which came after, yes, this is correct, after having seen Devil's Rejects and really liking Devil's Rejects. And then finally one day, 10 years ago, watching the 1972 version of Last House on the Left and saying, okay, first of all, I had no idea Devil's Rejects was essentially just Last House on the Left. Rob Zombie totally, it was homage, but greatly homage from this film. 
And I remember saying there was exact scenes and exact dialogue in that hotel room that were like word for word, devil's rejects. I have the memory of that, but I didn't catch it in this at all. And so I don't know if my memory is wrong or if that was missing from this version, or I do recall what you're saying from Wes Craven saying that there were so many different versions of the film because theaters were making their own cuts. I remember that as well. And I remember him making some comment about actually not remembering like there was a certain scene in the film that he thought was much more brutal than when he went back and revisited the film later. And he sounded unsure if the version, if that had just been lost or if the version he had looked at was even the version that he had initially put out. So I think there is some confusion around what version of the films might exist and where. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It looks like there's a, like a definitive Blu-ray version and I might look that up on eBay and see if there's a cheap one. Uh, just out of curiosity, we've got what we've got. It was just very different this time around because I expected to be struck by the brutality and I wasn't. I expected it to be a, a really horrific and disjointed and bad viewing experience. And it was much more of a put together film than I expected. I'm not saying the acting was wonderful or anything, but it was much better. The soundtrack actually fit for the most part. I mean, there were places where it was super weird, but it wasn't, it wasn't what I remembered, which was jolting and insanely loud and totally mismatched to what I was looking at. And I don't know if the version I saw on Netflix, I think it was on Netflix 10 years ago was different. I don't know if having my dad in the house somehow just threw off my perception of this. I don't know what it was, but to me, it was just a much more brutal in, in every way, not just violence, but also just difficulty of watching the film, a much more brutal experience than what it was this time. Yeah. I, God, I swear it must have been another film, but I can't imagine what it would have been to watch that had a much more, um, and I was even looking here, I was trying to find if there was a a much more like Vangelis, uh, Tangerine Dream. I don't know if you know, real like soundscapey artists that were real bizarre. That's That's really what I remember. It, it was a little bizarre during the, the sexual assault scene, but I also, the music's so bizarre. I, I, I don't agree with you. I think it fit pretty much during the, when they kill Phyllis. And other than that, it just is so odd to me because it's all this honky tonk, um, yakety yak, carnival kind of music. And I don't know if that's supposed to be. I mean, I guess they did it. I don't know if that was supposed to be a contrast to the, fairly dramatic assault violence scenes, but I just was, <laughs> it, it was so bizarre to me. And it really, uh, for me this time around watching it, we, we could talk about watching it this time. Um, the music was just like, it's like watching Hee Haw. And I was just like, what is the, <laughs> what is the point here of, of, of this? Why, why is this this way? And then there was this, such this oddball slapstick uh, comedy with the cops. And it's like, yeah, okay, I understand that the cops are supposed to be incompetent here. The throwing them off the truck, chicken coop truck, and them having the whole like roll down the thing. I was like, what, what, is, what is happening here, Craven? <laughs> like, I know this is your first film, but uh, I, I don't know. So... But maybe you could talk about your experience this time and then I'll say a little bit more about what I thought. And so I'll, I'll just give you my read on the 
soundtrack, which I agree with you was weird. It just wasn't as weird as I remember. I remember it being yeah. so weird. I couldn't pay attention to the film. And I want to say the volume even was off in my memory to the point where like, I just couldn't, I couldn't even figure out what was happening because there was screaming carnival music at me. And this time it wasn't like that. It roughly was sound adjusted to fit the film. And I mean, it was weird. I'm not, I'm not I denying. Still it was, remember that also. I'm saying I still it wasn't, remember that. I think maybe what it was meant to do, and I'm just guessing here, this was easier to see in this version than my memory of the incredibly jolting version. What I would have said from memory is that that music was there just to disorient you and just turn you upside down because the whole thing was so jarring and disorienting. But this time I didn't find that it was. So I'll say maybe it was playful and Mm -hmm. playful because it seemed like the exercise of this film at least from what I remember of, of having read about Wes Craven's intentions. And I'll say this is more from interview stuff than watching the film this time. But it seemed like the intention was to just present base violence. And there is a playful debauchery, I guess, nature in that. And somehow the, the music might fit with that idea. I don't know. I don't know that I feel like it's fairly effective, but that may have been what it was getting at. Yeah, I, I get that. And I think that's probably right. I could, that's what came to mind too, is it's supposed to be how trivial the violence is to them. They're just doing this, they're having fun with it. And the music is therefore also sort of circus-like and it is kind of a freak show. I mean, I get that, that's fine. But yes, I do also remember it being more bizarre. Maybe someday we'll watch a film and we'll realize, <laughs> oh, it was this other one that had the, super strange soundtrack, although I don't know what it would be. This time around, what I noticed more was, I understand why this launched careers. And I understand why it's still well-regarded because, yeah, for 72, it established all kinds of tropes and conventions of the horror genre that, as far as I know, did not exist beforehand. So I'm so glad we watched it. So give some examples. I just, I mean, the chainsaw, for that matter, Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out 73, so it was a year later, probably inspired by this. The, I mean, with Craven, for sure, it's the the incompetence of the police and some of the sin, death, right? They go looking, they're in the bad part of town, they go, look, go looking for drugs and they're, we could talk about the gender and sexuality separately, but they're liberated women they've been drinking and not really following their parents wishes and that's what gets them into trouble particularly is the is the we want you know we're trying to score some drugs here for our bloodlust metal heavy metal band or whatever (laughs) uh you don't know where we could uh score on some uh good grass do you i would have to imagine that the gore even for what it was that we saw was fairly intense for for that time what else i feel like there is more i feel like there were some camera shots and i know there was uh maybe that didn't establish it but craven was clearly pulling off of like there was some sort of illusion and reference to psycho i mean it opens with her in the shower and I feel like there was a shot, there was at least one shot where, I'll see, I did reviewed names and I don't even remember. The main, Krug, there we go, Krug. It's like point of view, camera's point of view of the victim and he's leaning over who it is. It's either dad or 
Mary or I don't know, whatever. And he's attacking them. It's interesting that there's a gun because that's very not slasher, but there is a lot of, you know, the knives and the chainsaw are established conventions. I feel like I'm missing something crucial. What else are we missing? Or what else am I missing? I I have a follow-up. Yeah. Okay, but we can come back to that maybe. I actually felt like in a lot of ways, it was very much ahead of slasher films, even that would come out now because it, it disposed of our initial victims very quickly. They were gone early into the film, which I didn't remember. And so I, I was wondering what was going to happen with the whole second piece of the film, because I remembered the basic layout of them showing up at you know, Mary's parents' house. But that was quicker than I expected. And I thought the violence against the main victims, now maybe that's because some of it was edited out, but even if it was edited out, we would only be talking five more minutes, I guess, was fairly minimal. They took it to the next step of, and then what, in a way that present day films often don't do. And so you're talking about like setting up tropes for a genre, but in that way, I actually feel like it, it did a better job than most offshoots of the slasher genre. I don't know if I would call this slasher exactly, but still, it did a better job of having a more interesting plotline or a more developed plotline than many of those films do. Yeah, which is also very much uh, a reference to Psycho. Psycho was shocking at the time for no other reason than he kills off Marion Crane. I mean, Mary, Marion, same name. I guess that would explain the spelling right there, right? That was a huge deal to have this star actress be killed off halfway through the film. Same thing here. And you have, you have our killers who are dressing up and playing the role of nice middle class, not maybe upper middle class, but middle class, working class, clean cut American white people very you know norman bates there's reference there too so but yes that that's definitely definitely is not something that translated out through the rest of the slasher especially that first wave slasher films just a lot of the the notions of the violence and like cruelly like hunting someone down and that like persistent hunting of another person it did give me very much black christmas vibes again black christmas would have been another year later uh when we talked about that that's so black christmas 74 probably shot in 73 so that was definitely inspired by this there really isn't anything like this again until until black christmas and it's it's uh credited Texas Chainsaw 74. This really apparently started it. Like you said, I'm sure there were Grindhouse films, but anything with any kind of, maybe if you remember, there was any Grindhouse with any kind of intellectual component at all. But my impression is that it really wasn't. It was it was more pastiche like the Mondo films of, here's some nudity, here's some medical experiment, here's some quote-unquote primitive culture here's some ritual or some, I don't know, deviant group and there's your film. (laughs) I think that's right. And I, but I do think that Last House on the Left was a film that was distributed through Grindhouse channels at the time, Mm. but gained enough traction and enough popularity that I think I won't, my memory is not clear enough to attribute it solely to this film, but I do think that this influenced more mainstream producers and theaters to start picking up, oh, we could produce horror that more people are going to want to see and then watering it down. Like the Friday the 13th, I recall, I wish I could go back and 
read that book. It was a book from a library, so I've returned it long ago. I can't pull it out and look at it right now. That Friday the 13th was a reaction to the popularity of these films and this notion that, hey, if we take this and we make it a little more palatable, we can probably pull in a pretty wide audience. And that the audiences that had been drawn to horror through the more grindhouse venues were really upset and bothered and you know, like when the cool band suddenly sells out and now they're producing crap and everybody likes it kind of thing. There was this real view of like what I had thought of as like the heyday of horror in the eighties when horror suddenly becoming, you know, late seventies, I guess, early eighties, when you start having these slasher films that are really, really popular and they're the classics of Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and all of that, that that was viewed by people who appreciated horror in the early seventies and were seeing it through these less, um, commercialized, I guess, venues as the total sellout phase of horror when it just became, it, it took a lot, many steps back in terms of how transgressive it was being and what types of boundaries it was pushing just so it could be more popular and more palatable to the masses. And that fits very much with the sort of Reagan era politics that get infused into slasher films in the 80s. Just that it fits that overall idea of we're going to water this down and we're going to make it something that just everyday middle-class America is going to be drawn to. I don't know if you've noticed, but the trivia or notice it from the credits, but Cunningham and Steve Miner who did Friday the 13th and, uh, but were on this film. They worked on the film. So my memory is that there was a tie between the two, specifically Friday the 13th and, and this film. So maybe that's it, but that it was, yeah, it was the, it was the attempt to make it palatable. And I even want to say that the grindhouse audiences, maybe Friday the 13th was distributed through those venues also, but they've just, disliked it and said, Oh, come on, this is terrible. What kind of, what, what kind of, you know, overly watered down crap are you producing for everybody? <laughs> yeah. So Sean Cunningham produced this film and then went on to direct Friday the 13th and then Steve Miner. So he made Friday the 13th part two as director part two and three, and then made some other horror films. He was assistant editor for the last house on the lift left i mean there were a crew on this film so he was a production assistant that's super interesting historically so friday the 13th which again i think of as this this major contribution to the horror genre was the sellout version of last house on the left that was yeah. produced to get people who couldn't stomach last house on the left interested. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, maybe. Uh, I'm not saying maybe like I doubt what you're saying. I'm just not sure I'm willing to commit to the sellout version of this <laughs> completely right, right away. Uh, I'd have to think about that. Well, I will more so say at that historical time period, there was people who appreciated this film who absolutely felt that way. And that was fascinating for me to learn because I, again, thought of, I thought of, Friday the 13th as like a major establishing point in the horror genre. And so to realize that there was a, a sort of deeper, darker movement that inspired that, that I wasn't even aware of was, was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely, it's totally fascinating. So I have another interesting topic, given that this was 50 years ago. Oh my gosh. 1972 was so long ago. Um, <laughs> how old am I? Wow. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I was going to say, careful, careful with that there, Laura, because we're, we're getting up to those, that age ourselves. <laughs> anyway. Um, but so given that this was made 50 years ago, I actually felt like it did a better job. And I, I'm going to, this, I'm aware of the relatively low bar I'm speaking to, but still, I think it did a better job of gender representation than 
many of the more present day horror films. I, I noticed that throughout the film and I also thought that that fit in a way with the watered down, with, with the perception of horror films in the 80s being a watered down version of something like this and a more palatable version. And when I think more palatable, I also think more uh, feeds in better to more like mass ideas and political views and that sort of thing that, that there was a much more traditional conservative view of women in slasher films in the 80s compared to things like this that were a little bit more edgy and a little bit more progressive and coming before there, before that time. Yeah, so I feel like we should actually talk about that. As always, that's what is interesting to me. I don't have a whole cohesive piece put together, but my initial thoughts are that this film may be more conservative than, may have a more conservative arc than I would have expected it to. And before I forget, hopefully maybe I can edit this back. The other thing that that I noticed with this, and I'm sure other folks have as well, is is the whole rigging the house with booby traps and devices that is exa- also how Nancy dispatches with Freddy Krueger in Nightmare on Elm Street. So I guess that's very signature Craven. And that would be another trope that was established between the two. So that's the other thing I was thinking of. And I couldn't stop thinking of Macaulay Culkin. You had to have flashbacks to that. And I, I felt bad for the film because they didn't know that Macaulay Culkin was going to do that too. But, oh gosh, just when, uh, it was ridiculous the amount of time they were putting into these booby traps for, for a, a currently evolving situation. As it felt completely crazy. Like, right. Booby trap something for someone who's going to show up later on, maybe. But when they're right in your house right now, that was some quick ingenuity and also remarkably effective because... They could easily have gone wrong. I don't know. That was just... <laughs> and tell me if I'm wrong, but wasn't... My whole impression was that he had poured alcohol on the rug and then hooked up a raw wire. And then there was no flame ever. There, that was never used. That trap was never deployed. Oh, you're right. He did pour something on the rug. And I then thought... put the, like, stripped wire. And I was what like, electric... okay, when he flips it on, it'll, it'll spark and it'll set whoever that's standing there on fire. And then that never happened. So I... But that was Krug, right? He got electrocuted when he went for the doorknob. Oh, was it, much- oh so it was just water to, for electrical. Okay. I, I was thinking it was going to be, maybe I was thinking of Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, oh, okay, we're going to light him up. Yeah, you're right, right. Did he spray shaving cream or something on the floor? Yeah, which I guess was to slippery something. <laughs> Whatever. Actually, on that note, randomly, I, for whatever reason, just threw out a, a movie that is out that is called Becky. Spoiler alert. And it is exactly Home Alone if it were a horror film. Which I was like, oh my god. That's such a genius idea. I can't believe nobody's done that for the last 40 years or however long it's been, 30 years since Home Alone came out to just make it a horror film. Because I've seen there's like infographics, and I think there's even like a fairly popular poster that's like, here's all the injuries that they the burglars would have actually experienced if they had been hit this way and hurt this way and whatever. And it took until whatever this year for somebody to be like, oh yeah, why don't we just make that out a horror movie? I mean, they, Becky is, they have a, a girl as the protagonist rather than a guy and it's in like a cabin, so there's a little bit, but it's totally Home Alone as horror film. It was really kind of a fun watch for anyone who's, who's uh, interested. 
<laughs> Becky is. Becky, yes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Just a little aside there. So like I said, we see her in the shower. The very first thing, which whatever. We can talk about the nudity here, you know, uh, in a minute. And then we have dad. Did it actually open with her in the shower? Because I feel like my version didn't. Unless, did I blink? Was it really fast? The first thing quick. I remember are the ducks and the uh, mailman. The ducks? The ducks in the pond outside. Yeah. View of ducks. Which is and a shot they totally reuse. That's which, you know, that's why. It's just smart. The mailman shows up and makes creepy comments about how Mary's coming of age and isn't she lovely? Yeah. So, but I mean, this is, it's her in the shower. Oh, Let's tell you. I mean, this is yeah. Okay, here's okay male person, and then you know here she is in the shower in the bathroom and all that, and then it launches right into dad being like, "Yo, I can see your nipples. You're not wearing a bra," <laughs> which I laughed just because I. I mean, I it was it was sort of somehow uncanny how that scene all played out it was just a little obsessive it was not just a little it was obsessive or it it was odd how he didn't just say oh you're not wearing a bra it was like let me stare at your chest and let me discuss how exactly i can (laughs) see see your breasts and uh i'm concerned with that with you going out like this Hey, no bra? Of course not. Nobody wears those anymore. Nobody except us drill sergeants. Yeah, but look, Estelle. You can see our nipples as plain as day. Daddy, don't be so clinical. But it's a modest. So I'll get some sandpaper. Look, young lady, when I was your age, when you were my age, you all wore brassiers that made your tits stick out like torpedoes or something. Tits? What's this tits business? Sounds like I'm back in the barracks. All right, then. Mammary glands. They used to tie them up like little lunatics in straight jackets, and they stuffed socks in their bra. Mary, you told me that yourself, Mother. If God had meant women to go around with their bust exposed, Mary Collingwood, he wouldn't have given us clothes. And so that happens, and then we worry, worry that she's going to a slum to see a punk, evil, metal concert or something, and... Then she brags to her friend Phyllis about having grown breasts since last summer, and she now is, feels like a woman. So we have this indication that she's reached womanhood. She literally says that. And and then they have this bizarre, I don't know if it's bizarre, but they're set up as sexually promiscuous, right? Like, oh, what if we made it with the singer from the band or whatever? And then... And this all gets them in trouble and they have the whole, so they end up with these fugitives and the fugitives, the woman, Sadie, which I assume is a reference to sadism. Yes. Specifically says, well, Freud is the biggest sex criminal of the century because he's who is responsible for everything now being a phallus. You can't just have a phone pole be a phone pole anymore. That's how everything is. And then her friend is, and then they say phallus all very bizarrely. And her friend is Phyllis, which is, you know, just a, which is a homonym approximately of phallus. And so Phyllis, the phallus is killed. I guess the implication is Phyllis is raped in the, when they're still at the hotel or the apartment or whatever it is. Is that the. I don't know. 
Yeah, well, it's not, maybe it, maybe not. Because it wasn't clear why. So this is the bit I'm talking about. And then, you know, she just washes. And so, yeah, there's something about this that was rapey. She's being assaulted. She's like groping her breasts. And so it's like, we're not going to kill you. We're not going to stab you because the blood would be so messy. And then he says, there's other ways to do things. And they drop to the floor. And then Mary, we have this close up on her reaction of, and so that was my, my impression was this was, she was being raped. You might be right. I mean, that's just my impression. She, you know, she's screaming, no, I don't know what else. Again, that was my impression. So that's how, that's how I read the film. And then Phyllis is then they, they're taken to the woods. Oh no, they make them make out with each other, have sex with each other. There's this real prominent anti-lesbian sex negative dialogue where Mary is totally, I can't make out with my friend or whatever that you want to call it. I can't be sexual with my friend even at the threat of death because being a lesbian is so sick and wrong. I can't do this. And they strip him down, humiliate him and watch. And they apparently go through with it. And at that point, Phyllis really does lead the experience, I guess. And sort of says, just, you know, it's me. It'll be okay. I don't exactly know. I don't know what the whole Phyllis Phallus really works out to be, but I don't think it's a coincidence. And then Phyllis runs away and they chase her down and kill her. And while that's happening, she tries to convince a junior to run away and kind of does. They don't there. They run, they cross paths again. And then that's when Mary is raped and stabbed and she wanders out into the water and is shot and they think she's dead. And then the other, I guess the other sexual bit is, oh, the other sexual bit is, uh, is Sadie earlier on. Oh God, I'm screwing this up chronologically. Uh, Sorry for those who are listening. Sadie does have that whole thing about, oh, well, you're my woman. No, you're my woman. No, I'm my own woman. And she's in trouble with, Krug for reading some sort of woman's lib women's liberation magazine and then she claims that oh i'm my i'm my own woman let me up hey forget it you got the cream of american man oh, right here the cream of american man that's good Krug. shut up and get away from my woman your woman i thought she was our woman. just a minute Piss off i'm not neither of yours woman I am my own freaking woman. Right, you shut up. Hey, what have you been doing? Reading them creep women live magazines while I was up in the jug, huh? Maybe. Why don't you just lay back and enjoy being inferior? Zoom off, you male chauvinist dog. Pig, Sam. What? Male chauvinist pig. Okay, you male chauvinist pig. She's right, crew. Shut up. I ain't putting out anymore until I get a couple more chicks around here. And this is where I guess I think the piece gets interesting for me in terms of the conservatism. When Sadie finally rejects Krug at the end and works to try to kind of stand up for herself, she is killed. So, and 
and in terms of like framing throughout the film, she is constantly like bounded by men and the women generally are like, they are framed and kept contained by the men. And so when she tries to break out, she's killed when junior who is also, I guess, feminized or is not, I guess is feminized because he's called a pussy and he's called, I don't know. Uh, he, he's like, we talked about with the, I spit on your grave. He's a, he's a kid. He's not a full man. Krug and Weasel. And then Mary is actually still alive and returns to the house. But so she, she does end up surviving, but it's, she doesn't accomplish anything there. She is not a final girl in any sense of the first wave of, of slashers. And especially again, I keep thinking of Nightmare on Elm Street, where if we see these folks as symbolic, the legal system has, has failed and family, in terms of patriarchal systems, the family, who is both doctor and family patriarchy, don't fail her. They actually save her because it's her ignoring her father's advice and, and comments that ends up getting her into all of this trouble. And it's when she returns to the fold and he is able to overcome and and not just be a doctor and a father, but also invoke this masculine violence to, to ensure the safety of his family. And that to me seems very conservative as well. It's patriarchy and dad. And if you would have just listened to the family and, and known your place, you probably would have been okay. That seems real conservative to me. Mom is agentic. Mom kills Sadie or finishes her off. I, she was injured before when she contradicted Krug. And then she she bites, she castrates Weasel. But mom is still acting as an agent of of uh, the family, I guess, and is is empowered only, I guess, in being a sexual deviant, I, which I don't know what that means. I don't know if there's a thread there, but just by the fact of him mentioning Freud and not just casually, but phallus and pahalus and how do you pronounce it and all of that was clearly... And the, all the mention of women's liberation and, oh, nobody wears bras and you were worse off back then because you had torpedo bras or I can't think of what the, there's some name for that style, the pinup style. So I'm, I, I feel like I'm rambling now. I'll turn it back over to you. But, but that was the piece that seemed conservative to me was both, well, mom would be the exception, but all of the younger women are ineffective there, there's real backlash of, of negativity when it comes to really with any sex, they're not supposed to be doing this. They're not supposed to be out on their own. It is the height of problematic to have the two women hook up with each other. I understand that it was coerced and it was abusive. It's not a volunteer relationship, but it's still like they were going to have them hit and enact violence on each other. And what they decided would be worse was to have them be sexual with each other. I, I see all of what you're saying. And again, I'll just reiterate that I did start with saying this is a fairly low bar, but I still think there are some notable differences that, that stood out to me as more progressive in that regard than something that easily could have been produced last year and follow a lot of the horror tropes, the more <laughs> standard tropes. So I'll throw, out, I'll throw out what I was arguing for in that and we can maybe flesh through this. Yeah, great. I think having two, our two female protagonists who granted neither one lives. And so 
that maybe throws a bit of a kink into my plan. Well, well Mary, Mary does live, right? When she makes it back to the couch, she's still alive. Is she? Is she? I didn't think she was. Did I thought... You're, you're absolutely right. She specifically asks Doc, or she specifically asks Dad, is there anything you can do? He says no, and she, he said she's dead. So, okay, go ahead, carry on. My mistake. So neither one of them live, and that may throw a kink in this. But I will say that as the two female protagonists in the film, it was a, a different experience compared to like the standard 80s slasher formula, which I think is still invoked today, where we need a protagonist that we can care about, which means she needs to be the cute blonde babysitter who's a virgin, who's never drank, who's never whatever, and somehow gets wrapped up in the turmoil of the other kids. And so the absence of that, the fact that we were legitimately interested in these girls, this wasn't an experience, I think an emotional experience, where we were just on board with the killers and they were there just as a prop to get beat up. I think we were supposed to be on their side. And I, I felt oh, yeah. side throughout the film. So the fact that we could even be on their side without any of that, those normal signals that this is someone you're allowed to care about. And that even felt more so the case to me when you juxtapose it with the family at home, because then we have the very traditional family, they're setting up her birthday party. That felt much like the vibe that the 80s slasher invokes where again the babysitter sitting on the couch making popcorn that sort of suburban feeling came through in the family and yet i didn't feel like there was a disjointedness between mary as a protagonist and the family i didn't feel like she had been extricated from the family that she wasn't somehow part of that it felt to me like she even with all of these behaviors was still welcomed into the family. And that felt more so the case, actually, I was surprised when mom and dad were, maybe it was when they called the police or when mom wanted to call the police or something. Dad says to mom, I picture mom on the phone at the time, but dad says, don't worry, she's going to come home. It's fine. Let her, let her have her adventure. This is normal, which stood out to me, first of all, in that I, that felt legitimate. Like they were normalizing this type of behavior, again, from a female protagonist. And that, I think, puts a little bit of a dent in the argument you were making about her coming home and dad has to solve the problems. And if she had listened to dad's advice, this wouldn't have happened. Because yes, what you're saying played out. So it's still there, but it's less there than I think it might have been, again, in something that was made last year. Because I actually didn't feel like her behaviors put her in out of dad's favor. Even if it technically, if she had listened to him, this wouldn't have happened. I didn't feel like that was... I thought that morality was being put forth by the, the dad character in the film, and that felt notable and important to me. Also, we have, a, we have a female villain, which is not super common. And so, yes, she is, it keeps being, they kept being described as like the two primary assailants, and then they're, they're sidekicks. They've got two sidekicks. We've got like, it's just the, the female was grouped in with some woman and some kid or something, you know, and these two guys who we're obviously talking about. So again, low bar, but she was there and she was somewhat agentic. She was, again, not, I absolutely agree with you that she was caged in by the men in the film, but she did have more of a voice than, well, certainly more of a voice than the absent female villains in a whole slew of films that would fall into this genre. And again, easily could have gotten made last year. So I think just her very presence means something. And mom, as you said, you know, mom and dad, I think equally end up killing the villains at the end. Yes, they put dad with the man and they put mom with the woman. And again, that's a bit weird, but they both, they both did it. Also, mom was very agentic in killing, uh, what was his name now? The weasel. Weasel. And yes, she had to use her sexuality to do it. You know, we're back to, what did we just see last week? Uh, teeth. <laughs> 
that was the image. Yes, back to emasculation. But so when a woman, when her only means of agency are through being sort of sexually assaulted in this case, that's not and what kind of agency is that? And that's a very narrow view of agency for a woman. However, even with that said, she was agentic. She did accomplish those things. And, and I really did feel like she and dad were equals in this story. So I'm not saying it was great. I'm just saying I, I actually think for being made 50 years ago that it was better than a lot of the things that came in the subsequent decades. And frankly, better than something that I could easily see some mass produced thing now that we would just go to the, the AMC and eat our popcorn and drink our Slurpee and see. I think it, that was impressive to me for being done 50 years ago. I appreciate you saying that. I think you're right. I think it's particularly, like you said, given the time period and the context, I was going to add that it really did seem like Phyllis was the one who was more blamed or was more responsible She's, oh, I know you don't like her mom and she's, you know, she's done whatever else with boys down at the farm or I don't know, wherever she was working, I don't remember, whatever she was doing. And it's Phyllis who suggests the the grass and Phyllis who also has the bottle of booze stashed. So, um, So I don't know what that means, but and yes, mom actually ends up killing both Weasel and Sadie, right? So she actually dispatches with two of them. Junior shoots himself. And dad, so dad really only kills the the patriarch, Krug. God, is, I mean, it's Krug and Kruger. I can remember Freddy Krueger in my sleep. I don't know why I have such a hard time with that name, but... But yeah, so dad really kills Kruger. I mean, it's very it's a very phallic weapon. I don't know if that means anything in particular, but it is very, there's definite phallic referencing. She makes fun of Weasel's penis size and Krug's phallus of the knife is not as big as dad's phallus of the, of the chainsaw and so on and so forth. I agree with you and I appreciate you saying that particularly given everything else, there was some real, there, there was some, some steps forward. And that is really borne out with the rest of Craven's career. If he had gone on to make a bunch of movies that ended up being conservative and whatnot, that would probably be more counter to, to the pushback that you're giving and the argument that you're presenting. But particularly because he did go on to make a series of arguably even more, if you want to call this feminist, even more radically feminist horror films. I think giving the benefit of the doubt for this film is, is important and is, is I'm glad you pointed it out. Cause yeah, I was, I was looking at the half full instead of the half empty, you know, the sexual assault. I, I remember it being worse to watch as well. And we do focus a little bit, there's, there's a shot where it's really their pelvises and it's just the, that section, that middle section of the body. And we're, we're watching the act, which is not real great in terms of establishing empathy and invoking empathy for the victim or, or 
presenting it as problematic. But then we do see a close-up of Mary and a shot of Mary and her suffering. And, and afterwards, somewhat similar to I Spit in Your Grave, we do really focus on her as, as she struggles and gets up and tries to escape and, and move away. So I felt like that was very well done. And I would be very curious. I, I am unaware of another... I have some books here about rape revenge films. So maybe I'll look. I am unaware of another film that has a sexual assault where you actually see the assault and see the aftermath prior to this. And that in and of itself is, or was, I think probably pretty radical at the time. I mean, there was, you know, I mean, we're getting into the golden era of porn with taboo and deep throat. I think those were early seventies too, but then there were all kinds of like quote unquote skin flicks, which were like, you know, the soft core, I don't know, porkies. But in terms of actually just showing like a sexual assault and the brutality of it and it really being this devastating thing, I think you could argue that that was a real feminist move to do that and show how much of it all that, how terrible. And I'm trying to think what else, I watched something else older recently and what God, what was that? I watched something and the, there was a sexual assault in the, in the film that they just like, or they mention it somehow they mention rape and it's just like this casual, like, Oh, whatever, you know, that happens to women. <laughs> you know, it's like sucks. Sometimes your car goes out and you go out and your car battery's dead. It was like, so just flippant ignoring and so for this, I think that's a that's an argument there too that this has some some credibility with regard to focusing on women as as the. I mean, I uh, she, I don't know if she's. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm rambling. Go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say, <laughs> I think you're getting into some tricky territory there, because when we think of I Spit on Your Grave, which yes, this the aftermath of the rape scene in this film reminded me so much of I spit on your grave that I couldn't help but think I spit on your grave directly drew on this just Mm -hmm. up and stumbling off in a bit of a daze. And that felt so much of a a corollary there, but I spit on your grave. The whole film is clearly situated around the female protagonist redemption. And in doing that, I think the rape scene served a purpose and had a utility that in this film, given that that was not what the film was about, I question your assessment of it as feminist. I think it's, it wasn't done badly. You know, it didn't feel exploitative, except that just being what it is and showing it on a screen and the fact that that might provide shock value and someone might say, hey, have you seen this film? There's like a rape in the film. Someone could have gone to see it. And no, it wasn't. I don't think it would really feed into, at least this version, I don't think it would really feed into the fantasies or whatever of someone who would enjoy that who knows what the longer version was or how much of that was included in a longer version. But I think I spit on your grave is a different category because the entire arc of the film and the way the film is structured is, is to beat down that argument. And I don't think this one did enough to necessarily call it feminist in showing that. I think you could make probably an equally valid argument that it showed it in an exploitative manner just to, for the shock value of it. But that said, I don't think it did anything that was overtly exploitative either. I don't think it, lingered in ways that would have been appealing to someone who wanted to empathize with the assailants. So I don't think it was bad. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it was a step in the feminist direction. 
Okay. And I appreciate you pointing that out. I was speaking in the context, like you said, of the low bar of, I don't know, 1972 and, and just making it a, like you said, I, I agree. It was absolutely there for shock value and that can be problematic. But I guess what I'm saying is that because I would agree with you, if, if nothing else, it wasn't like a necessarily problematic or dismissive or minimizing presentation of that kind of sexual assault, which at that time, I mean, that's pre even laws about, yeah, it was mid seventies before we even had outlawed the fact that husbands could, or made it possible that wives could, could accuse husbands of rape because they were property. So at this point in time to show that seems like a step in that direction. And it, it wasn't a, oh, she ended up wanted it or it wasn't that bad or any sort of that. So that's what I guess I'm saying. I'm not saying it's particularly feminist. I guess what I'm saying is that my, my claim of it having a feminist component is really qualified and within the context of, of the era. I would agree with you. Which is, it, it's hard to imagine, but just from what, what I do know about that, I'm thinking of, uh, what is the other film that was, that I haven't ever actually watched, but I think it's just called The Apartment. No, what is that film called? Linda Williams has a book where she, the entire book is is written about films that exist in the liminal space between porn and mainstream. And one of them is a film with, I think, yeah, yeah, which is Carnal Knowledge. And from what I remember of her book, book in that film the main character assaults this woman i guess it's jack nicholson assaults i think and margaret uh let's see the whoever it is whatever the the main character one of the main characters who's a man assaults this main character who's a woman and it's really just the like oh once he gets going she would just lie back and enjoy it kind of trope and that was 71 so that's a year before this and apparently that was really actually problematic behind the scenes as well in subsequent interviews with the actress. So that I guess is one of the thing, one of the major pieces I'm using together context of compared to something like that, where it's like, Oh, you know, women, you just, they like to say no till they say yes. And then they'll quote unquote relax and enjoy it and all that compared to that. This is totally feminist, <laughs> but like you said, it's a very low bar. So I appreciate because I certainly wouldn't want anyone listening to to hear what I said and think I'm saying more than I am. So I'm very grateful that you said what you did to to kind of clarify that. I, I totally agree with that, and I also think that this had a lot of it had a lot of similarities to I Spit on Your Grave beyond just the aftermath of the assault, which was incredibly strikingly similar. And like I said, has to have been an inspiration, I would think in some ways for I Spit on Your Grave. But this was, it fit the standard layout of a rape revenge. Now the parents didn't know it was for a rape per se, but we had the same setup. We had the brutalization happening till about halfway through the film and then suddenly the tables are turned and now our assailants get what they deserve and that was interesting and i wondered if there were rape revenge films prior to this or if this if that this structure was also an inspiration for i spit on your grave because i could see how you could you could watch this film and say 
what if Mary didn't get shot in the river? How could you essentially play out the same storyline, but now have Mary step up and be the one who saves herself and takes control of the situation? That would be a relatively minor modification to how this played out. And I just thought that was very interesting. Yeah, and I think that's the credit to the film is we've we've referenced Rape Revenge films, we've referenced slasher films, we've referenced, and not just any, but like I Spit on Your Grave, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, and that whole genre Halloween, like you said, is is essentially a sterilized or a watered down version of this. These are major movements in horror. And absolutely, like you said, I, I would be... Well, like Friday the 13th and uh, these these major iconic films that started whole subgenres themselves all, like you said, it, it isn't just like a casual thing. It's like the shot setups and the, the tone and the story inspiration and the all of that was, there's pieces of it here and I'm sure given how notorious this film became were absolutely direct inspirations for this and and if nothing if no if there's no other nothing else for that it would explain why your horror meetup person was questioned your horror fanaticism without having seen it because yeah it, it does it seems like a a crucial and i don't often reference it so i'm glad we rewatched it i appreciate you for that but i i so often go back and reference psycho and then i jump to Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I, I often skip this as in the genealogy of, of modern horror films. And it is, it, sh- it shouldn't be skipped. It deserves a place in that. And I suppose I have skipped it just because I hadn't seen it and rewatched it and really thought about it in the context of where we are now, where we're talking about f- films in much more depth and all that kind of thing. Just on your commentary on the film's contribution, I would just like to throw out again that my initial experience was so different. And I wonder if that was the uncut version. I don't know. But I think there's a possibility that it had more of an impact in terms of presence of brutality than we're able to discuss now. And so whether that's just a figment of my imagination and something I'm misremembering because my dad was wandering through the room making mm-hmm. coffee or whether that actually existed. I just can't imagine watching this film and being so bothered by him being there. And so for that, I just want to restate yeah, that something might be lacking in our discussion of its commentary by not having seen those scenes that were cut out because five or six minutes could make a big difference if those were a very violent or impactful five or six minutes that we missed. I have very much the same memory. So I think you're, I think you're probably right. I have very similar memories of the differences and the things what you're saying. So, and I would imagine that at that point in time, you know, there was no streaming. I'm sure we probably got the same DVD. Shoot. If you watched it when we were in, in Boulder, you probably got it from video station also. So we probably watched like literally the same DVD. I actually think it was Netflix. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe I downloaded it. I don't remember. The only other thing I was going to note that was on my list kind of was um, there's so much, so much animal reference. Pigs and weasel and... Chickens and ducks. Chickens and ducks. And God, I felt like there was even something else. But I, I just wanted to at least mention it. And it seemed like some of it was the classic 
or I guess now classic acknowledgement that that part of the process or one of the processes of dehumanization is to render a person as more equivalent to an animal than a than an actual other person and that allows for a violence and a and a treatment of someone as less than equal and I guess I just want to at least mention it. It, it was just seems so prominent. And what was the specific commentary on a duck? Because it opened with ducks, but then there was a scene where who was it? Was it Krug was talking about ducks? And I took note of it. And now I've forgotten. Now that you brought this up, but I remember thinking, oh, here's going to be the key to why we saw the ducks. And since I'm not remembering what it was, it must not have made a big impact. But do you remember? Oh, that? You're right. Well, I, I have been having the subtitles open so I can search them, and I did that. And it is, uh, it's the cop who says, oh, I wish I could be something else. And the other cop who's the Cobra Kai instructor in Karate Kid says, <laughs> he says, you know, I wish I could be something else sometimes. And he says, like a duck or something. And he says, no, you fool, like a, not a policeman, like a plumber or whatever. Okay. Okay. That's right. Now that you say that. So that was the other duck thing. And then the neighbor takes the, is gone with his pig, who also left with puppies before. Early on, let's see, Krug says to Sadie, reading them creep women lib magazines while I was up in the jug. (laughs) Let me just say that the dialogue does not age particularly well. (laughs) I feel like this was a, I mean, I understand that, you know, you try to use some slang, but I think this was a, this is a cautionary tale about leaning too far into the slang of any particular era. <laughs> and she says, maybe, Krug says, why don't you just lay back and enjoy being inferior, which is one of the like, most sexist and insulting lines I've heard in a while. But she says, that that came out of his mouth and we were meant to dislike him. I didn't mind that being there. I actually didn't feel like that was, I felt like that made him look bad. And because, oh, totally. I mean, from the perspective of the film, I feel like it was supposed to make him look bad. And so that to me felt okay. Well, and then she says, zoom off, you male chauvinist dog. And he corrects her and says, pig, Sadie, male chauvinist pig. And then Sadie says, I ain't putting out anymore until I get a couple of more chicks around here. A couple of more chicks, yeah, equal representation. There was just a lot of animal references that I thought some of were very bizarre. That seems to be very mocking of women's liberation, but they're the evil ones. So for them to, hey, you know, and I'm sorry to totally jump back, but when you're talking about dad wasn't really, he doesn't like command her to go put on a bra or dress more modestly. He raises his issues. It's done very strangely, but he says his piece and then lets her do her thing he still gives her a necklace he doesn't throw a tantrum or like try and ground her or anything so he is i guess yeah that could have been much much more conservative so i will get grant that and compared to the reaction here of how women's liberation or or something feminist is cast as problematic with the evil folks and and so it, it's anti-critical of a feminist position it has that going for it as well so yeah there are some other pieces there for sure that i think it's it's totally great that you you emphasize that 
I felt very much in that scene like we were supposed to be on Sadie's side, and that oh, yeah. felt okay. I, I can't help but pull this reference in, and first of all, I'm not going to be able to even appropriately reference the reference, so I don't know if you'll know what I'm talking about. And secondly, I hated the film, so there's that too. Is <laughs> the guy with the mustache on Parks and Recreation, is that... Do you know who I mean, that guy? Nick Offerman? Yes. Yes, yes. Okay, so he recently... <laughs> He did, a, or he narrated a short, it was like a Western short. It's like eight minutes long or something. I want to say it's called The Gunslinger. I could be like so completely wrong on that. But it's, people think it's really funny and it's a comedy. And it bothered me because it problematizes, oh, it's, it's just a big pile of mess of like problematizing stereotypes that should not be problematized. But I, I throw this out to say there was one really funny line in the film, I thought, and there's a group of people and they get this sort of rallying cry of like, Hey, we're going to, the idea is that then it's a Western scenario and there's a narrator who's talking over the action as might happen. Like Bob walked to the door and whatever. And so Gofferman, he's the narrator. And so he starts just throwing out personal details about the people in the, in the scene that, and they can hear the narrator. So they start playing off the narrator. And a lot of the things he's pulling out are just really problematic trophy wise. Like, you know, someone's gay or something. And it's like, ooh, don't talk about that. Just stuff that's, it's a minefield of, I think, why are these laugh lines and they're not funny and it's just terrible. And then it almost takes a little bit of a, an ethical turn at some point where they say something like, you know, hey, maybe the point is that we all have these secrets and we all just need to accept that everybody has diversity, whatever, whatever, something. And I like started to think, maybe could it possibly pull this together? But I don't know after the pile of wreckage that I feel like I've just sat through. And then there's a woman there and she steps up and she says, yes, and, and women too, or something like that. And then immediately everybody turns to her and says, not, not so fast. We don't mean that. And that was the only funny line I thought in the entire thing, because you were clearly on her side. The way the film was structured, it was funny because they were being terrible, not because it was an appropriate thing to say or because haha we all feel that way deep down like you were clearly for that moment you were clearly situated on her side and that the reason that stands out to me is because in assessing films i i've now noticed more so how that how important that is to me in understanding the ethics of the commentary and so that that came up for me particularly in this film around the discussion about women's lib that i always felt like we as the audience were meant to be on the side of in that case of sadie and that, oh yeah, I mean, oh, then the sure. fact that they say these awful things about it isn't bad because we we didn't agree, and you can feel that in a film. It's not just personal, like well, I yeah. don't, but I think the film didn't agree, and that to me felt important. The other piece that I just now remembered as well is I also want to acknowledge that Phyllis and Mary did have some agency. They crafted their plan of I'm going to run. And then when I run, that'll be a distraction and you are actually going to be the one to, to escape. And, and Mary then coerces or tries convinces brother with some savvy junior to, to leave with her to go get his fix. She manipulates him that way. And they, so they, they do have, they do just have some points where they make choices and Phyllis hides and then gets across the river and then i know you hate chase scenes but she wasn't just totally uh, helpless running through the woods she she had her moments the implication i got anyway was would have gotten away if krug hadn't circled back around or had been coming back from whatever he was doing or whatever to to intercept her so 
And I'm so glad you brought back up the manipulation of junior because I wanted to point that out, first of all, as a, a direct, I think, influence on I Spit on Your Grave. And also I wanted to ask you, is that, is that a trope? Is that something that often comes up in films where we have the questionably morally bad villain? Because immediately I thought of, oh my gosh, this is exactly I Spit on Your Grave. And then I, I tried to run through my memory and think, can't does this come up more frequently in films or is was this potentially just an influence on I Spit on Your Grave? Because it was so direct. But it's an interesting question. I would actually expect more films to address that possibly. We're looking at culpability and especially in a revenge film, who deserves it? When Junior dies, I think it was a bit of a sad story and he kills himself. So violence is not enacted on him in retribution. He's just broken in such a way that he's manipulated by one of the villains into killing himself. I think he gets off the hook as largely not a villain in this film. Yeah. And for sure it's direct reference. I spit on your grave. So that's great that you pointed that out. And it's because they are both specifically referenced or otherwise compared with women or less than fully capable men. Like you said, in this one, it's sidekicks. You know, I spit on your grave. It's he's got the toys and the bike, and he has developmental kind of issues, and he's dressed. We've talked about that. We talked about that all. And here, Junior is, you know, he's weakened, and he's kind of all that him about, oh, I'm sorry, and and having it, this addiction. All of that is like a weakness, and uh, it's a, like a tantrum. He's like a child. Like, oh, we have to go check on our child and see because he's crying out and disturbing the adults at the table. So, so yes, it's not, it's not just that he's a sidekick or younger, but it's, he's equated as, as less than fully masculine or he's rendered as less than fully masculine. And I don't know, but that is a trope that we should think about because I feel like there, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I definitely feel like there's situations where there's often one man who is the less, capable or the less or the more feminine or the or what about devil's rejects is there a i don't know those films as well as you do is there like a you know a less capable there's tiny and tiny that not in devil's rejects but in house of a thousand corpses tiny is the very large sibling who lives with the people in house of a thousand corpses actually he's very similar yes because he let someone go, I think. I'm remembering a scene with Serial, and I believe he lets someone go. He sort of plays along and sort of doesn't, and he's mentally slow. Right, and it's, that would be the trope, is if it's you're less than, than fully hegemonically masculine, and you're also less than fully complicit or culpable in the, in the horror being enacted. And it's interesting that those characters aren't female. Now, we can't think of many of these characters, so it's a small sample, but... In House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects, you have female villains just like you have male villains. But we haven't seen in our three examples we can think of, we haven't seen a, I, I tempted to say neutered, so to speak. Right. Totally, yeah. Female villain in the way that we do male villains, which is interesting. That probably speaks to some underlying assumption that the men would be able to fill that role if they were not, if they didn't have some hindrance if they didn't have some developmental disability or drug addiction or, well, I take that back actually in this case, because it's not his drug addiction that caused his drug addiction is how someone else gets him to do it. To do right, but he, 
but he doesn't want to, he doesn't have the drive, but he seems, he seems fully developed in that way. And I spit on your grave. I felt like the villain wasn't somehow mentally developed. I don't know. No, for sure. But in this, he's also neutered because Krug rapes Mary. So we know that he has the sexual agency and then Weasel seduces, courses, is capable of having sex with mom, Lydia, something, whatever her name is. What is it? Stella or Estelle? Stella? Estelle, yes, Estelle. So Weasel is capable of having sex with Estelle. She insults him and whatnot, but he apparently is going to orgasm. I mean, we know that, right? He says, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to orgasm. So he is sexually viable as well. And Junior is the only one who is, like you said, very much neutered. So there is absolutely that. And that's, that's something we should keep an eye out for because it, it is interesting. And just the more we outline this, the more I want to say this directly fed into I Spit on Your Grave. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, especially I forgot about that component too, but there were so many elements here that were, were so tied into that film. It makes me want to say that I Spit on Your Grave was a direct response to this. They took pieces of this film and then turned it into a cohesive argument, which, like you said, in itself makes this a really important film to see and discuss. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, should we grade it? Yes. I will also just say that this is very much an iconic version of the, oh, this is actually an inversion of the urban and rural. They are from New York City and the good people are out living in the sticks. Okay, sorry. Uh, so what I was saying is this is an inversion of of some of the other films including I Spit on Your Grave, where the criminals are from the city and it's the good people who are out in the exurbs in the in rural who are like the honest, upstanding folks. They are not the, they're not, you know, the rubes. They are, so they may not have a phone, but he's a doctor and they're civilized and they have meals with wine and courses and read the newspaper and have some sophistication there. That's just kind of interesting. This is actually pre-Deliverance as well. Deliverance is 1972. So, oh, I guess this is 72 as well. So same year. Oh, and is the Nick Offerman film Francis Ferguson? No, I don't think so. The Gunfighter, that's what it's called. The Gunfighters. Oh, yeah, you said Gunslinger, so you were right on, huh? Yeah, pretty close. Okay. So for... I don't know, the past year or so, what we've been doing is grading the film in terms of how how socially responsible the film is in terms of its portrayal of people and what the the ideologies are in terms of the arc and the amount of commentary versus violence and, and nudity that exists in the film and how fear is used throughout throughout the film to to uh, invoke messaging within the audience it wasn't a proper sentence to invoke empathy and and concern within the audience and to render things or people or ideas as good and evil and so for this film i don't have any idea what the how real how real this sort of crime was i feel like this is oh god i mean i don't know i i guess this was or this is very soon after civil rights and so this is really probably the beginning of white flight. I got the impression that 
that the Collingwoods didn't flee. They were living out here and the criminals themselves are white. So it doesn't seem to be playing into this, these white racial fears of the, of the era. In fact, it might be challenging them by having the criminals be city folks who are, who can dress up in suits, even if they're going to wear a suit with sandals, which weasel did, which, uh, you know, we whatever. If, if you're going to bring up race, we can't, we can't not. Oh yeah. Comment about the just atrocious, 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 a chicken truck driver situation. That was painfully, terribly awful. It was, it was. I will say though, she's a black woman in upstate New York in the seventies who turns down to police for anything. I was like, Oh, I just sort of assumed they were going to be like, look, get out or screw your 11 cages of chickens. We're taking your truck. (laughs) Uh, So, but yes, she was absolutely a caricature and a racist stereotype for sure. So yes. And she was the only person of color in the film to the best of my knowledge that, that I could see, but we empathize. Like you said, we empathize with the women. We empathize with the family or, or with the parents. We empathize with, even with the, the criminals with less power, Sadie and junior. And it really is uh, weasel and Krug who are the, who are this version of masculinity that is, demonized and is ultimately killed off and and emasculated and and that's seen as a proper thing to do but it's difficult to do these things when we're so far removed from the context of when this film came out the nudity in in many in some of these films from that long ago or in the films that i've seen recently from that long ago is so odd because it's just there's something about it that is so much less objectifying than even like the casual or the passing nudity that I see in Hollywood today. I find it so bizarre. We talked about this when I spent on your grave of, I don't know exactly what the difference seems to be, but there is totally a tonal difference in how women's bodies, even when they are being objectified, they're not like as objectified as I feel like they are today. And I say that particularly with the scene where Sadie is like holding Phyllis's breasts and we, and then she's, he, Krug says, move your hands or whatever. And we see her and it's, I think it's a scene where they're, she is being objectified and we're supposed to be seeing her as objectified from the viewpoint of the criminals. And it still doesn't feel to me as problematic as a lot of supposedly more better nudity of today. So I just find that generally interesting. I was not particularly ever scared. Like you said, Laura, uh, to take from you, it seemed to me a more of a shock film than a fear film. There was, there, I th- yeah, I don't know. It's so hard for me to do all this. And this is, again, this is social responsibility. So this is not, I just want to clarify that my grade here is to distinguish not its importance in terms of the future impact it would have on the horror genre. I would land it somewhere in the like the the B B minus. I'm just kind of throwing that out there. I don't have a real good sense to this film. I was thinking similarly. I was going to say C plus B minus. I, I feel like B to me would be reserved for something that actually had a positive impact, but maybe B minus. Mm-hmm. Especially because I mean, I made the argument that it did strike me repeatedly as 
more progressive, and again, very low bar, but more progressive in terms of its treatment of women in a film like this, which is, you know, very often women are the victims and they're being antagonized by men, mostly, but in this case, not entirely. And watching that play out, I, I was struck often by how much better this was than really something that could be present day. So, I mean, for that, maybe that, that at least in, its, in itself wants me to bump it up into the B range. I'm not saying it was great, but it, no. was, it was all right. And yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm inclined to give it less credit, if that's the right word, for the sexual assault depiction than you were maybe. At the same time, it wasn't really problematically done, at least not in the version we saw this time. I don't know what was different with those extra minutes. B minus? Yeah. Yeah, I think somewhere in there, the 80, like the bottom B minus kind of grade something like that yeah because it wasn't it wasn't terrible <laughs> this is what our bar is <laughs> right it well it wasn't terrible by today's standards and it was done 50 years ago you know i would say it was on the upper end of a lot of gosh what's produced in this type of genre even today so for having i mean so long yeah ago. yeah when you put it like that i mean there's films from five years ago that don't age well <laughs> so yeah, 50 years is a is a for it to even hold up at all is is pretty remarkable. And I I think as long as we clarify that we're trying to reach across that divide of like 50 years, I think a, I think there that makes total sense. Next week we're going to watch the 2009 version of Last House on the Left. So we can hopefully that'll be real interesting in terms of comparison and contrast. I think that's going to be fascinating. I'm so excited to do it because this is the one time that I have a hope that the remake is not going to be a completely useless waste of energy on something that was perfectly good to begin with, which has been our take on just about every remake we've ever seen. But, and also remakes that we have not seen, (laughs) like with Martyrs. Or Funny Games, right. Yeah. (laughs) I think there's hope with this one because you said it was someone credible first of all I remember that and I remember seeing it and thinking it had some merit and this first film was so poorly produced that a remake seems entirely in order frankly yes right and there's more there I will say plot wise like I started with there's more there than in many slasher films that are produced today and so I actually feel like there's some fodder to work with where it's not like uh, gosh I want to I want to reference maybe like the Amityville remakes and if, I, if my memory is even serving on this, when I saw those 100 years ago, I, I don't know when that was, that the Amityville remakes came out. I just remember it being laughably terrible because all of the tropes that the original Amityville set up, and they were great, they were new with the original Amityville, were so tired and old by the time they remade it that it just seemed like the biggest piece of garbage. <laughs> it, it did not do well to update it. But this film actually had some contributions, I think, beyond what many films that are produced today do. So I think it absolutely has the potential to be a, a reasonable remake. Uh, yes. And I want to clarify that the remake that is made by a credible person that I was thinking of the, is The Hills Have Eyes. So not Last House on the Left. So I can't, I, I don't want to stand by the director of, of this remake, but I will say that I remember watching it when it came out and I did think it had some merit and some contribution and it wasn't just a total disaster, useless, unnecessary remake. 
So it will be very interesting. So if you're listening, we appreciate you listening all the way to the end here. And we hope you join us for next week. I think it will be a really interesting opportunity for comparison and, and to consider the film. Absolutely. And I look forward to seeing the, the newer version and knowing it was a newer version of anything. Because when I saw it last time, I thought it was just its own standalone film. I had no idea of the history. So this will be, oh, yeah. be great. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Well, we appreciate you, uh, you listening all the way to the end. And we hope you join us again next week for the 2009 Last House on the Left. And horror films are our collective nightmares. I'm glad we did that. I was yeah. unsure while watching it if it was going to be worth it because it was so not what I expected the experience to be, but I'm super glad we did it just for our sake because that was really, that was really great. Yeah. Oh, I, I, anytime any film has anything for us to discuss, I'm always very happy. It's those very rare exceptions, the end of the wind that comes to mind where I think that's a real indictment of those films where, like, if we don't have anything to say about your film, you probably shouldn't have made a film. <laughs> it was the wind and it was piercing, right? Or the oh, two. God. Oh, I forgot about that. And piercing was the director who, who made something else that was actually interesting, right? I think so. And it was fun to watch, which was a, a, a weird conundrum we ran into. We weren't, we weren't bored. We didn't hate it. There was just nothing to talk about. Yeah, okay, so that's it. that person made the eyes of my mother, which we watched and, and were intrigued by. So the eyes of my mother to piercing. And we, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, that's, I've kind of forgotten about that one. Anyhow. You know what we didn't talk about, which I wonder if we maybe we should have, is something about like the parents being dragged down to the level of the, of the criminals. How so? they ended up having to engage in this terrible violence. Maybe not. Yeah. I don't know about having to, but, but taking on that role, they were not able to rise above. And even that little bit where the cop is like, no, you shouldn't do that doc, whatever. And the parents are clearly traumatized at the end, but they really, I guess the, them being dragged down to the level, because like you said, or you pointed out in particular, really was a turning the tables where before they were the Krug and company were toying with cat and mouse with the girls with Mary and and Phyllis and in this it turned into Doc and Estelle really toying with and you know it wasn't just we're going to try and get them out of the house or we're going to try and get out of the house and run it was we're gonna set up traps and we're going to confront them and Estelle's going to manipulate Weasel and I'm going to shoot you and electrocute you and really brutalize you. And so they ended up, obviously it's in reaction to what they did, but, but they still end up, like I said, pretty much being dragged down to the level of the, of the criminals. I don't know if that's interesting or not, but I, I did have that thought. What I found most interesting in listening to what you were just saying was 
how much more plausible that arc is in a rape revenge film, or I would say a revenge film in general, although the ones that we've seen recently have often been rape revenge, because it's the victim themselves who experienced the violence and has this anger or seems like an understatement, but you know, the, the, the emotion that they feel toward the assailant is something that you can absolutely see them wanting to get out in this violent way. Whereas the parents, even though something terrible happened to them, I mean, these people killed their child, that's awful. Somehow the fact that they weren't there through the experience does make that transition just emotionally different and also different because they went through really creative lengths to do it. You know, and maybe that's just a, a poor character arc in the film that they snapped bizarrely quickly into, they went from where's our daughter to, oh my gosh, she died to, okay, how can we go through this really intricate set of steps to try to harm the people who did it, including the mom being able to come on to the assailant, knowing that he killed her daughter, finding out 10 minutes or five minutes ago, whatever, that he killed her daughter and then being able to seduce him and have a conversation with him, walk outside. And that's apparently go down on him long enough that he was going to have an orgasm. Like that's just all yeah, that's wild. going on there. It's less, less of an emotional stretch when you have a revenge film where it's actually the victim doing it. And we are going to revisit some rape revenge films. So I just want to throw this out there and I think we can come back to it then, but I don't know why it's never occurred to me before, but the revenge films that are not rape revenge, but that are men are almost all the ones that I can think of off the top of my head are brutalization of the man's family. So all the death wish and I saw the devil. Uh, it was revenge. Sure. But I don't remember actually. I don't remember either, but I, I was thinking of the more of their like action. I was thinking of, I was thinking primarily Death Wish, but the original and the remake and Death Sentence, which is the Kevin Bacon James Wan film, are both kid is killed or mom is raped and killed and then the kid is killed and that is what sparks the father into this rage of like you said hunting people down and and enacting vengeance versus when it's been the revenge films we've watched with women it's it's they themselves that have been been uh attacked and and traumatized which i don't know but i think that's something we should I just wanted to throw it out there so when we come back to another rape revenge film, we can, we can get, kind of think about that. That is really interesting. So the violence is enacted on women or the family unit in both cases. It's just who enacts the revenge. I mean, it may or may not be sexual violence, but that's interesting. What about Ichi the Killer? Was he revenge? Oh, we should do Ichi sometime. We could do that. We could do that. I... Tried to watch it once and I didn't get more than like five minutes in and I was just like, I'm not in the place where I can watch this right now. But I, yeah, I would watch it. In line with Martyrs, Ichi was, the, Ichi was the first film actually for years that put me off horror for a while. And I saw it and it was just such a terrible experience and I wished I hadn't seen it. And then at the same time, respected it a little for making me wish I hadn't seen it. That was back when I was at grad school in Arizona. But my memory, and it, it might be off, is that Ichi was some sort of contract killer. And I, I feel like he was brutalized in some way. And then I don't remember if it was revenge exactly. If it was revenge or if it just turned him into this person who wanted to kill. Hmm. I could be wrong. Okay. Well, I added to the list 
little down because I think we have a few more in between this and that, but I put it on the list so we were aware of it. Okay. Well, I always enjoy this, Laura. It's pretty much what I look forward to all week. So, <laughs> And then we've got all of Parker's uh, you know, episodes and, and teeth. That's so, so exciting. Yeah. That's so exciting that we did those. That we that went so well. I can't wait to hear it again. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait till we publish it and get to hear it because it went so well. I'm so proud of us for Yeah. Oh yeah. That's... I'm proud of you for leading with <laughs> martyrs. And I was like, what the heck is he talking about martyrs for? And that was so relevant. That was so great. Was so great. Really great. I you know, I was still hoping that we might get a bite from uh from knives and skin, but Maybe she listened and hates me. <laughs> was like, these people didn't understand my movie at all. <laughs> the synopsis from IMDb is two teenage girls heading to a rock concert for one's birthday try to score marijuana in the city where they are kidnapped and brutalized by a gang of psychotic convicts. So that's pretty much all spoiler. Let's see if I can do an off the top of my head spoiler free synopsis it's uh let's see thank you for joining us and with that we will uh dive into this discussion and uh hope we don't lose sight of the trees for the forest (laughs) i was like what (laughs) that i remembered here i love them corny (laughs) lead-ins i don't know if that one that one quite flew no it's been great (laughs) That one I'm not so sure I'm on board with. Uh, <laughs> I don't have anything <laughs> else. Huh? Directions. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, we're, we're here. I got one. We're gonna uh, we're gonna see if we can get all our ducks in a row. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> Keep that one. All right. One. So yes, we're gonna start a discussion and see if we can get all our all our ducks in a row. Um, so good and understated, which, which is brilliant. Uh, that's good. I appreciate the, the challenge to, to push me to, to more and better terrible puns. Is it a pun? I don't think it's really a pun, but whatever. Um, watching it, I, I could have met. Dexter, <laughs> no. A male per- person or something? There's a dog outside who's barking. Oh, yeah. Please. Okay. Uh, uh. From CU or from? I, I No, I think the Boulder Library that I checked out 10 years ago. I can go see if I can find it. But anyway, for the yeah. purpose of our conversation right now, I... Uh, I don't, I don't have access to that, but how does she get back to the house if she's dead? I thought, okay, so I got super confused about that actually. And I wondered if there was a strange cut that happened in the film, because my memory is that mom and dad were leaning over top of her. And one of them says something like, no, there's nothing that can be done now. Maybe it was dad because he's a doctor. I don't know. So I thought she was dead. And then she was on the couch. And I thought, did they carry her back? Maybe they found her in the yard. When did they know to go out to the yard? As soon as they figured out what was going on here, I thought they were Oh, you're totally out. right. She's dead. I somehow just blinked at that line or something, which is a, my fault. I 
should be focused sufficiently to to catch that. But you're right, yes. And then there's this prominent like anti-lesbian like even with not like 